My name is Justin Jones. I'm assistant pastor here uh, at GCC, and it's a real privilege to uh, get to open up God's Word to you. Today we're uh, going to continue our sermon series that we started last week. Uh, The sermon series is entitled Life After Death. Uh, It's the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. And so the next several weeks, we're going to explore the the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection uh, and his ascension, who he met with and, and, and how he ministered to them. Because the ministry that he did then is the exact same ministry that Jesus continues to do even now, even now by the work of his Spirit. And so today we're going to look at Jesus' ministry to two individuals, um, one of whom we only know his name, and the other individual, we, we don't even know that. And yet, this profound conversation is recorded for us. And so let us read about this interaction. Uh, It's Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. You can find this on page 12 in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But they did not see him. And he, he being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to a village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me if you would. Father, we we know that the physical Jesus is not standing here in our midst. But Lord, again, your spirit is. 
And we pray now that, that by your Spirit, we would experience something similar to, to what these two gentlemen encountered. Lord, that, that our hearts would burn within us as we reflect upon who you are and what you've done, your love and your grace for your people, and the lengths you went to to rescue us. And so work now in our midst. Point us to Jesus. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Convict us. And if any of that happens, Lord, we know that your Spirit did it. So work, we pray. All in Christ's name. Amen. A couple years back, a uh, really hilarious video went viral on the internet that, that was put together by a couple of Christians. Um, and the point of the video was to, to very playfully poke fun at the phrases, the expressions, the words that, that Christians often use, especially as they interact with each other, which are often unintelligible to other people. Okay, It's all in good fun. But it did expose the fact that, that the way believers can speak to one another can almost sound like a completely different language altogether. Christianese, if you will. And one particular expression that, that may be common to believers but, but curious to others is this notion of, of getting saved. Are you saved? Have you been saved? When were you saved? Saved. And Christians may know what they're talking about, but others may not. Now, if you don't know what that expression means, the, the obvious question to it is, Saved from what? what? What do we need to be saved from? And, and, and then to the next question, how then can we be saved? What does that even mean? But though the language may sound off-putting for those not familiar with it, the reality of needing intervention for some larger problem to be solved is not an idea that is simply held by Christians. It's actually a common experience, perhaps even a universal experience. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who will simply say, you know what, the world as a whole is just 100% perfect. There's not a single problem to be fixed. There's no issues to be resolved. There's no reason to march in the streets. Everything is exactly the way that it should be. No one says that. Because all of us look around at the world that is, and we know that something, perhaps even many things, are just not right. And the thought is, if we can just get that thing fixed, or those things fixed, then the world will be as it should be. But everybody knows, deep down, this place needs to be fixed. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved even if we can't agree on, on what exactly we need to be saved from. And so the essence of, of religion, the essence of spirituality, the essence of philosophy, the essence of economics, of politics, is to identify the predicament facing us, whatever that us is, maybe humanity as a whole, maybe some subset of humanity, but identify the problem and then offer the means of salvation. Provide the ideas, provide the method, provide the means, provide the action, provide the person that will save us. 
Every time I read this passage, every time, I did it this time as well, there's always one phrase that just sticks out to me. It captures the state of Cleopas and his companion. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What we find in this passage are two people longing for their salvation. That salvation being the redemption of Israel, meaning their nation no longer living under Roman occupation, but instead experiencing the the, the blessing, the, the prosperity, the freedom that they long for as God's people. And they come to believe that Jesus was the one who was going to give them salvation. He was the God. But he's not really around anymore. But we had hoped. Before, we, we, we had hope. But no longer. The one we thought would save us is dead. And now we don't know who's going to save us, or if we will be saved. What they thought was going to happen no longer appeared possible. What happens then when the thing we thought would save us no longer seems able to do so? That's where we're going to hang out today. Last week we looked at uh, Mary Magdalene. She was suffering from, from a broken heart. And with the understanding that the heart and the mind, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're all kind of wrapped up in each other, I want us to look at Jesus' ministry to someone with more sort of intellectual problems today, okay? Someone whose, whose minds are disoriented by circumstances, whose dreams have been dashed, who were devastated by the fact that the future they thought was going to turn out a particular way no longer seems viable. The title of today's sermon is, is Good News for the Disillusioned. In our text, we see Jesus ministering to these two individuals in at least two ways. Okay? First, he explains the good news about himself from the Scriptures. And then, the ministry of Jesus is experienced at the table. Okay, Those are going to serve as our two points for the day. First, Jesus explained from the Scriptures. Second, Jesus experienced at the table. First, Jesus explained from the Scriptures. Cleopas and his companion are on a road that's uh, to a place called Emmaus. We don't really exactly know where that is, but, but the text tells us seven miles from Jerusalem. Okay? And the point is, they're leaving Jerusalem. There was an expression I had growing up. If somebody kind of got mad and wanted to leave a place, you know, it's the idea of take your ball and go home, okay? They're taking their ball and going home, okay? And, and certainly dejected, certainly wearing that on their sleeve. They feel defeated. They feel profound loss at what's transpired over the course of the weekend. And they're reflecting on how things turned out the way they did. And then Jesus walks up. And similar to what we saw with Mary Magdalene last, Mary Magdalene last week, they don't recognize him. And whereas we, you know, might feel some kind of awkwardness, you ever walk into a conversation that's, you know, about you? Um, that's, that's a strange experience. Um, Jesus doesn't really phase him. He starts engaging with him, starts asking questions. And so Cleopas tells all of what he knows. Jesus, prophet, mighty in word and deed, crucified three days later, body's gone, uh, angels are talking about, or I'm sorry, people are talking about having seen angels, they're saying he's alive, and so they're struggling to know what to make of it all. 
And then Jesus, sounding genuinely surprised, rebukes them. This is verses 25 through 27. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus encounters disillusioned, discouraged, disappointed, confused people, he takes them to the Bible. Now, for some of us, maybe you've experienced someone who kind of comes at you with Scripture in the midst of a uh, difficult time or whatever, and, and, and it's, it's not wielded well, if I can say that, um, that he's kind of just hit you in the face with the Scriptures and kind of throw it at you, and not literally, but, but maybe, um, <laughs> I, let's hope not, but, um, but, but just sort of handle it in such a way that, that seems very preachy, self-righteous, I mean, potentially even hurtful. And so there's maybe even a reaction kind of going, I don't really want people quoting Scripture at me when I'm hurting. And I get that. I get it in light of the way that sometimes it's been handled. And yet, despite the fact that that for some that, that could be a strange thing, to be hurt and discouraged, and the last thing we need is Scripture, I think what we see from Jesus is, actually a different approach to Scripture, one that can give a tremendous amount of hope. But so much of this has to do with with how we handle the Bible, what the Bible even is. There's all sorts of reasons people might study Scripture, look at the Bible. You know, it's possible to look at Scripture and think of it as kind of a, 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 a book of morality, a collection of laws and commands and rules and, and cautionary tales that will, that will give us as individuals or maybe even corporately you know, a, a more upstanding moral society. For some of us, you know, we, we look at the Bible and maybe the Bible provides particular categories you know, that can be applied to our political situation or, or economic life as a society. For some, the Bible is full of, of practical wisdom. It, it's kind of like a, a, a how-to guide on maybe how to have a better marriage or how to raise better kids or how to better handle your finances or eat healthier, seen that kind of stuff before. Maybe the Bible is more like devotional material, you know, chicken soup for the soul, something to, to inspire, something to, to motivate. For some, the Bible can serve as like a secret decoder book, you know, help us figure out the end times and how this is all going to shake out. For some, the Bible's treated like a, like a, a dictionary of, of systematic propositions. Here's definitions about God, Jesus, the world, sin, whatever. To varying degrees, you can certainly find that stuff in the Bible. Maybe less so the secret decoder pen. But, um, <laughs> but that stuff's there. But what Jesus is going to do in this passage is to show these two individuals that while Scripture may provide and contain a number of different topics, none of those are actually the definite article point of the Bible. And hearing this question that Jesus asks to them, was it not necessary for Jesus to suffer? I suspect that Cleopas 
And his companion, their initial response to this question was probably, no. That really doesn't seem all that necessary at all. In fact, it sounds like the exact opposite of those offering salvation would do. Saviors don't suffer. Saviors don't get humiliated. Saviors don't get beaten and crucified. Saviors save. Saviors conquer. Saviors dominate their opposition. Saviors accomplish what they set out to do, and that sure does not seem like what's taking place here. Why would the Christ have to suffer? And if liberating Israel from the Romans was the salvation that Christ came to bring, if that was what redeeming Israel meant, then that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the salvation that they were after wasn't necessarily the salvation that Jesus came to bring. And so, what had to be like the greatest small group Bible study ever, Jesus, the risen Christ, goes through the Old Testament and explains how it all relates to him, how it's all about him. Now, we don't have the details of this conversation recorded for us, but, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that Jesus may have included the following. That all the way back in Genesis, God placed our first parents into paradise, gave them a command and made it clear that if they broke the command, death would be ushered into the world. The wages of sin was death. But after God, or sin rather, entered into God's perfect creation, God promises that one day he's going to send a deliverer who would crush the serpent's head and have his heel bruised in the process. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this deliverer would be the sacrifice in the garden that would cover the sin of Adam and Eve. And he would be the true ark that God's people would, would, would enter into and stay safe from the storm our sin deserved. And he would be Abraham's offspring through which he would have more descendants than the stars in the sky. And he would be the son who, unlike Isaac, would actually be offered up on the sacrifice, on the, uh, as a sacrifice by his father. He would be the prophet greater than Moses that was promised. He himself would be the Passover lamb. Unlike the rest of Israel, he would be the one who could keep the law perfectly. He would be the high priest who would offer up the perfect sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would be the one to usher God's people safely into the promised land. He would be the true son of David who would defend and protect his people against his enemies. He would be the embodiment of wisdom. He would be an evangelist who, unlike Jonah, actually longs to see the nations be brought back to God and would spend three days in darkness to do so. He would be the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one we read about earlier, Old Testament reading which is so overtly about Jesus, it sounds like it's from the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that this deliverer would be pierced for our transgressions, be crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we would be healed. All of that in one person. The reason it was necessary for the Christ to suffer is because what plagues us all And all that plagues us, all of the brokenness, all of the injustice, all of the pain and suffering that we encounter in this life 
ultimately is the result of living in a fallen world marred by sin, by your sin and by my sin, a planet living in rebellion to the God who made us and loves us. And the reason that Jesus explains all of this to Cleopas and his companion is not simply so they can respond with, wow, that's neat, cool, cool story, I see it now. I mean, certainly Jesus wants them to understand more. But in this moment, what Jesus wants them to understand is that their problem, what they need salvation from, is much, much bigger than the Romans. While the threat of the Romans was certainly something they felt very acutely, there was a bigger threat. There was a deeper threat. And this threat from which they needed to be saved was not something out there. The thing that needed to be fixed, from which they needed to be saved, lies within. And the suffering Christ does the same for us as well. That first and foremost, the salvation I need is not from all those factors outside myself. What I need to be saved from, but what we need to be saved from is us. I need to be saved from, from me, the enemy within, from the punishment that my sin deserves. And the good news is that's what Christ came to do. By being for us what we could not be, by living in our place, by taking the punishment we deserve upon himself. And through his sufferings, We are healed. Through his sufferings, we experience reconciliation with our God. And that is what the scriptures are about. This deliverer coming to reconcile us and all things to the Father. To restore and renew what is broken within us and with creation. That's the point. He's the point. Jesus is the point. And this is the salvation that we ultimately need. That's not to say that there aren't countless problems that we find all around us. Certainly there are. But if we fail to see that all of these problems ultimately stem from sin, from our sin, it is quite possible that we will experience a great deal of disillusionment, potentially blaming all these secondary causes for what ultimately ails us and searching for saviors who can't ultimately save. And so Jesus is ministering to the disappointed, confused, disillusioned individuals from the Word of God to show them that what they ultimately need is exactly what Christ came to do. And so they don't need to give up hope. But that's not all that Jesus does. Not only does Jesus minister to these guys by explaining the Scriptures to them, He grabs dinner with him, too. This brings us to our second point for the morning. Jesus experienced at the table. Verse 28. So they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to him, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. 
Now, over and over throughout the course of the New Testament, we find Jesus sharing meals with people. He's eating with them. And that might not strike you as all that profound, right? I mean, man's got to eat, right? Um, And, you know, perhaps eating with other people. I mean, Jesus was just trying to be efficient. He had a lot of stuff to do. Um, Let's just, you know, eat eat on the go. Eat while we're uh, we're ministering. Kill two birds with uh, one stone. But I submit to you that, that enjoying meals with people throughout the New Testament, by doing so, Jesus is actually doing something extremely profound. Because it's one thing to explain the salvation project of reconciliation between God and man. It's quite another to experience that message, to sit and eat a meal with the God of the universe. One of the more awkward anxiety-producing, even painful experiences that that many adults will describe in reflecting on their childhood is the experience of going to school and attempting to navigate the lunchroom. How many of you have some horror story? How many of you you can kind of think back and you've got a a little PTSD or whatever from the lunchroom growing up? You have a tray of food in your hand and you have a room full of people And very publicly, you are confronted with, where do I sit? With whom do I sit? How can I quickly find a place to sit so that I don't appear to have nowhere to sit without spilling my food? It's stressful just talking about it. Why? Why is that such a stressful experience? It's actually very simple. Who you eat with matters. And kids very perceptively, at an early age, know that who you eat with matters. To eat with someone communicates a great deal about about your relationship with them. To eat with someone means that, that you identify with them, that you relate to them, that you may even be friends with them, and you want people to see you being friends with them. You're okay with that. Actually, why the Pharisees were so shocked that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and prostitutes. Because in doing so, he's identifying with them. It's not simply a a neutral act. It conveys a great deal. But but not only does it communicate a great deal in terms of, of the nature of the relationship between the one that you're eating with, but the very act of eating does something. It accomplishes something. Certainly, yeah, physically. You take in the food, that kind of thing. But something happens in eating together. Relationships are formed. They're deepened. They're strengthened. Because as you're eating together, there's a relationship that's taking place. It's it's not just friendship as a title. Okay? Yes, we are friends. It's the doing of friendship. Friendship's not just this theoretical thing. It's, it's the friendship being acted out, being lived out. Back in the 1960s, there was an individual by the name of Marshall McEwen. Uh, he became known for an idea. Uh, it was an idea that was encapsulated in one line. Perhaps you've heard it before. The medium is the message. The medium, the way something is communicated, is the message. 
In other words, the way that a piece of information is communicated, the manner in which that information is communicated, intrinsically communicates just as much, perhaps even more, than the actual content of that message. For example, you have a bulletin in front of you. If you came into GCC today, and there was coffee spilt all over your... It was pretty obvious that I had used it as a coaster um, throughout the course of the week. And, and maybe even like used you know, different color paper. I mean, some of them were blue, and some of them were green, some of them were pink. And, and you know, when you came into the door, they were just all kind of scattered all over the place. And the, the whole sort of area where you got those things w- w- was, was a big, giant mess. And within it, I'm using different fonts, different, no rhyme or reason to how it all looks. What that means, this medium is the message is that though the inside of what's inside that bulletin, the content, may be, like, off the charts brilliant, but what's being communicated is is something entirely different. could actually even overshadow. And it doesn't just speak to necessarily the person putting together or the person cleaning up, whatever. It actually conveys a great deal about the God we come in here to worship. In the same breath, if you come in here to GCC, you walked in this morning, and it felt sterile, very clean, very polished, very put together, but so much so that you didn't even feel like you could like, you know how people can kind of keep their houses so clean, it's like, how do you even live in that, you know, because I mean, at some point you have to like walk through it, Um, (laughs) but if you come into GCC and it's so refined and polished that you as a real human being with like mud on your shoe or kids that scream or whatever can't actually walk in and feel like this is a welcoming place, that communicates a great deal. All this to say, here's the point, content is not all that matters. Content can only get you so far. Now, at GCC, we're, we are a Presbyterian church, okay? It's not something we feel the need to lead with, but it's also not something we're, like, ashamed to talk about either. And there are wonderful things about being Presbyterian. I, I'm actually, um, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I was sort of attracted into this world, uh, made that transition a little later in life. And, and one of the things that we're, we're really passionate about, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of our thing, um, is our love of theology, our, our, our emphasis on, on the content of the Christian faith, understanding the deeper things of Scripture, the depths of, of how and, and even why God would accomplish salvation in and for us. That, that resonated with me. That, that got me fired up. Sign me up. But having said that, there's also a danger in our tradition, which is that so much emphasis gets placed on the content that we can fail to appreciate and realize that this truth that we profess is incarnational. 
that God didn't just drop a book from the sky and say, there's my revelation, go learn that. He sent a person. He sent a person with hands and with feet, with, with a voice to articulate, yes, but with a stomach and a mouth that needed to eat food. There's almost a temptation, potentially, in our tradition where we, it's if we say something, it's kind of like we already did it. To simply, to simply say it, it's like we did it. And those two things mm, aren't exactly the same. Again, love our tradition. Love the beauty of it. But here's the point I want you to see from our text. These individuals that encountered Jesus just had the greatest Bible study in the history of Bible studies. Can we say that? I think we can. But it wasn't until they sat down and ate a meal with Jesus that they recognized him for who he was. The salvation that, that, that we talk about was actually visualized. It was manifested. It was incarnational. The way that Jesus ministers to disillusioned, confused, dejected people is not simply, not simply, to give them content. He doesn't just tell them about reconciliation. He shows them reconciliation. He demonstrates reconciliation. He invites them to experience reconciliation. Now, to be clear, does faith come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ? Absolutely. Is the whole, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, mindset missing something very substantial? Sure is. But the gospel is not simply propositional. It's not simply ideas. It's not simply information. Christianity isn't philosophy. This truth is not something uh, to simply be processed and meditated on and discussed. Yes, all of the above, but it's to be embodied. God designed for the truth of our salvation, for the truth of our reconciliation to be lived out, and not simply as individuals, but as a community of believers who do life together. That's the way that Jesus ministers to these individuals. I dare say it's the way that Jesus has ministered to us, and it's the way that we're called to minister to other people as well. It's instruments of his grace, proclaiming this good news in word and deed. If you're not familiar uh, with the name Rosaria Butterfield, the gal in the front of your bulletin, uh, the quote that I had there, she's a really, really, really important figure in our cultural moment. Um, the quote's actually from a new book that's going to be released later this month. How in the world I got a copy of it early, I don't know. I just found out that it's... Three more weeks, so uh, there it is. Um, I'm not important, but I have a copy. Um, I got to take a look at it this past week. Um, The book is entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a book that that is all about what she refers to as radical, ordinary hospitality. Being hospitable. We sort of look at that like hospitality is kind of going, that's a nice thing. Sure, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be hospitable. But for her, if you know her story, that's a big, big deal. Because during the 1980s, Butterfield taught at Syracuse University where she was the professor of women's studies. 
Uh, she was very much on the progressive end of the spectrum, socially and politically. Uh, she's a practicing lesbian, part of the LGBT, LGBT movement. But in the late 90s, she came to faith in Christ. And one of the experiences that she had that was so instrumental in her coming to faith was the time that she spent around a dinner table with Christians. And that wasn't like twice. Over the course of like seven years, she didn't simply hear argumentation at that point against her worldview, but she saw the kindness of those who had been saved by the sheer grace of Jesus, then demonstrated to her around a dinner table. And changed. God used it to change her, to bring her to faith. She writes, read the quote, The Bible offers good and realistic and powerful answers, but answers fall short without the pierced, hands and feet of Jesus. Ordinary hospitality is the hands and feet of Jesus, and it holds people together with letters to prison or hugs. Hospitality reaches across worldview to be the bridge of gospel grace. Jesus did not come with self-defense. He came with bread. He came with fish. And so, too, must we. Our actions our kindness, our hospitality, our living out the implications of this reconciliation that that, that the Scripture tells about, that cannot save anyone. Be very clear on that. It doesn't save anyone. But it can point to and validate the claims of the one who can and the one who does, who did it for us, to others to those who, just like us, need the salvation that Jesus came to bring. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you are a God who invites us to sit at your table. That you have taught us Uh, by your spirit, from your word, and that the words that we find in your scripture jump off the page um, and help us to experience what it's like to live as people who have been reconciled to you and to the world. And so would you help us uh, to see the beauty in this, not as another obligation, another thing to do, but to see the beauty in um, being your hands and feet as people who have been loved well by your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.